History happened everywhere. The verdict. This is our after show podcast where we look back at the most recent episode, episode 60, Red in the Atlantic during World War II. So if you haven't listened to that, go back and check it out or else there will be spoilers ahead. Oh, shut up. Hello, my name is Ryan Weir, and I am here in the HHE studio with the Rear Admiral to my leading hand. It's Mr. Peter Goddard. You keep your leading hands off me, sirrah. <laughs> <laughs> and we're joined as ever by the darkly despotic Dynamo of Dirge. It's the judge himself. It's Mr. Paul Dursley. Good evening. Now, Peter. Ryan. I've received an email this week from a listener saying that they were too busy doing the laundry, and so they missed out on a lot of what you spoke about. Ah. So they were wondering if perhaps you might recap here on the verdict. I think I could do that. When would you like me to do that? Well, perhaps like just a 60 seconds of 60 seconds, okay. Yeah, could you do that like now? Yes, we took a dive, dive, dive with the German U-boats which stalked the Atlantic during World War II, looking to sink shipping and deprive Britain of the food and resources it needed to survive. We learned about the Athenia, a passenger liner controversially sunk in the opening hours of the war. The Laconia, which fell victim to a U-boat, which then itself came under attack whilst it was flying the Red Cross and trying to help the survivors. And HMS Bulldog, whose crew boarded an abandoned sub, only to find it packed with very useful code books and a free Enigma machine. We also sampled a drop of Nelson's blood in the form of Navy rum and discovered the fascinating Canadian bar that was born out of the war in the Atlantic known as the Crow's Nest. That was last week's episode done. Summarised nicely, nice one, son. Now we're over to a young Dursley who's gonna tell you what he thought of me. He'll take you apart without any care. He's the lovely Paul Dursley. The lovely Paul Dursley. Ah, yes. I'm sure it's all come flooding back to our <laughs> listener. <laughs> Definitely real listener. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, for one, thought it was very impressive. But what does it matter what I think? We're only here for the thoughts of just one man, the Atlantic Titan. So, Paul, why don't you crack us over the head with a champagne bottle and launch us off with your first thoughts about episode 60? Did it float your boat or were you sunk in despair? It was satisfactory. High praise indeed. <laughs> How much of it was new to you? Very little. Are you a war fan? Well, not fan. That's probably not the right word. Are you? Have you have a keen interest in history of the war? Uh, I know a little bit about the Battle of the Atlantic. Yes, and I have to have to say there wasn't really anything that I didn't know about. Yeah, it does beg the question, doesn't it? What constitutes a battle? Because when you think of a battle, you think of two ranks of guys about to run at each other with spears or whatever they might be carrying, mm. or you know, an ongoing active conflict but you know most of the battle of the atlantic was kind of ships driving back and forth looking for each other which isn't quite how you think of a battle is it <laughs> hide and go seek yeah exactly yeah. It, well it's a bit different it's a bit different to i guess to, i guess to a land battle isn't it there wasn't a decisive winner until the war ended really yeah you didn't just have two ranks of sides it was almost a aquatic guerrilla warfare wasn't it people popping up striking and disappearing again well, yes, it was, because it, it certainly was swinging one way and then the other and then back again and then back again. A lot of it was to do, of course, with, you know, whether we were in on the codes or not at that time. Seems like the codes were pretty, pretty important to the battle. Well, I'm glad you raised that, actually, because we had an email from Margaret Morris, who we had on the show. Oh, Margaret. Margaret got back to us and uh, she expanded a little on my tale of the HMS Bulldog, if you recall. It was the U-110, which had the Enigma machine. Uh, and she's given us 
a bit more clarification, actually, for a couple of reasons. What she said is that um, actually the, the credit was that they got the first complete Enigma machine. So I had said it didn't really matter because they had mm. Enigma machines, but they'd only previously had parts of Enigma machines that they had to presumably put back together at some point. Mm-hmm. But they get the whole Enigma machine, and this was one of the first things. So actually, perhaps the machine was more useful than I gave it credit for. Yeah, because the Enigma machine had, although it only had three, although I think the Naval Enigma had four rotors, they were taken from a stash of, I don't know, 16 or 20, and I'm not sure we ever had all of the rotors. And the other thing that Margaret told me was that, I mentioned the HMS Bulldog, but there was also a ship called the Broadway there as well. And Broadway is one of the subs. Do you remember we talked about gun shield art in the Crow's Nest, where they have a, oh, yeah. like a panel and the ship's or their logo or the, the wet-ass queen was the example we gave. <laughs> well, the Broadway have a piece of gun shield art in the Crow's Nest. And it's Why do these the... people wear gun shields? I don't understand. Gun shield, you <laughs> doofus. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a Ryan joke. <laughs> <laughs> that is a cruel thing to say. <laughs> so the Broadway has gun shield art in the Crow's Nest and it's this kind of cartoon sailor and he's carrying a, a, like a fishbowl. He's got a jaunty little smile on his face. Uh, and in the fishbowl is the U-110. So it's like been captured and it's safe and he's just bringing it home with a big smile on his face. Like it was no big deal. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's very cool. I love all that art. It was great, wasn't it? Yeah. Was that like a job or did they do it themselves? Because they're all very professionally drawn, those characters on the side of planes. Well, don't, don't forget there were a lot of conscripts as well. So they may have, would have had skills anyway. There'd be a number of artists there. Okay. Yeah. Because like I, I, I feel like if we had a plane, it would be a stick fit figure at best it would be pretty poor i suspect <laughs> just, uh... <laughs> i don't think it would resemble if we much had of anything a plane, i wouldn't get on it if you were driving <laughs> so okay well that's fascinating a little bit of extra information yes thank I, you again margaret morris yeah thanks margaret uh i do want to just point out to you though paul that clearly peter got a fact wrong there or rather you know he didn't elaborate on all of it so just you might want to bear that in mind when we come to the facts <laughs> sabotage grading Okay. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> just, just pointing you out. Weasel. <laughs> <laughs> Can I tell you about the Atlantic? Because I feel that we missed out on some Atlantic facts. I did. Funnily enough, for the, in the interest of time, I did have some Atlantic facts that hmm. I didn't share. But if you you sound like you've got some. <laughs> I believe there are only three oceans. Oh, controversial. Oh, tell us which they are. What do you think? Well, I think Atlantic, Pacific, Indian. Indian. Yeah, that's it. Not a fan of the Southern Ocean then. A, the Southern Ocean is made up and it didn't exist for a long while. It was just arbitrarily designed as 60 degrees south. South. And the Arctic Ocean is just a big bay of the Atlant- North Atlantic. And if you look at the sizes of the oceans as well, that 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 is clear. You know, you get the Pacific, what, at something like 60 million square miles, the Atlantic at 40 million, and the Indian, I don't know, probably at about 20 million. And then the, the Arctic Ocean, 5 million. I mean, I must admit, the Southern Ocean isn't one that pops to my mind readily. Well, it's new. I'd be happy if it disappeared again. <laughs> it disappeared again. Tell, tell National Geographic, they've just put it on all their maps, so they're going to have to do a big reprint. Rub it out. <laughs> well, they got they they demoted Pluto, so I'm sure they could demote an ocean. Exactly. The judge has spoken. But Ryan, I still feel like you're harbouring some Atlantic facts that you I want have to share with us. I recognise that tone of Up yours. my sleeve. <laughs> All right, quickly then, some Atlantic facts. 
Uh, the name Atlantic, it's very old, dates back to the Greek word Atlantikos, translates as Sea of Atlas, Atlas being the titan who held up the earth. Uh, Atlantic was the first to be crossed by plane. The first ocean to be crossed by plane. Yeah. All oh, right. But, you, yeah. but there, you can fly across the Atlantic over hardly any water. Well, that's why they chose it, presumably. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so three US Navy flying boats set out from New York City, May 1919. Only one of them completed the trip. Uh, American aviator Charles Lindbergh in 1927. And Amelia Earhart, the first woman to fly solo across the Atlantic in 1928, a year later. Uh, it's the second shallowest ocean in the world, an average of 11,960 feet. Two miles deep. Mm, on average, yeah. Because of the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, America and Europe are moving away from each other very slowly, widening by about four inches or ten centimetres every year, which means that the first successful telegraph cable, which was laid across the Atlantic Ocean seafloor in 1866, would have to be extended by another 1,560 centimetres or the width of an Olympic swimming pool. So d does it mean then, like a rubber band, it's just broken? I don't know. I guess it just lifts off the seafloor by a centimetre or something. <laughs> There must come a point where they're watching and it just goes ping. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. It's now. Well, no, it, it, they would they would lay it in a zigzag form. I would guess like a big pipe. So, oh, so it's not like direct, like a tightrope. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Minimise the amount of cable needed. Pull it taut. <laughs> yeah. Save yourself. Yes, that's not the that's that's not the most economic way of doing it. You you spend more on cable but less on fixing it. I'm I'm guessing that the cable laid in 1866 is probably either rusted through or is dissolved in salty water. Well, it has one of my favourite words when you're talking about cables: gutter percher. Ooh, what does that mean? Well, it's a type of resin. Uh, which was used on the early cables to a insulate and b make them more keep keep them watertight. It's just lovely word gutter percher. Gutter percher. Gutter percher. I have an Atlantic fact for you, Ryan. The Atlantic is the saltiest of the oceans. Oh, fact. <laughs> By what amount? I couldn't tell you the measures. I just know that it is the saltiest. Also, that the two Did you continents go around and taste each one. Yeah. Like, ah! <laughs> on blind taste testing. I don't like it when people give facts without the reason. Yeah, you should probably bear that in mind for his fact grading. So um, one of the things I wanted to talk about last time, Ryan, but couldn't because it was entirely relevant to the time, place and topic was the Sargasso Sea. Oh, yeah. You know, we were talking about the difficulty of saying when a an ocean or sea begins or ends and how it's easy when there's a bit of land, but it's harder if it's just a current. Don't you just use the United Nations book limits of oceans and seas? That's what I do. Which tells you. Um, do you no. Not, do, you not, do you not do that? <laughs> I'm not please. a subscriber. I didn't realise that was uh, something that was available to me. So I've just foolishly been uh, looking at the currents and, and such. And it is indeed by currents that sometimes you find a boundary between a sea or an ocean. Mm. And entirely within the Atlantic Ocean, there is the Sargasso Sea. So this is a sea in an ocean. Mm. It has no land boundary at all. It's just bounded by currents. It's named after Sargassum, which is a kind of seaweed that you find in the Sargasso Sea. Mm. And it forms these these big floating mats that turtles and things use to live on and hatch their eggs and whatnot. Hmm. Weirdly, in October 1960, Scrooge McDuck tried to start a seaweed farm in the Sargasso Sea. Uh, <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> I know. So I, a... Did I just fall asleep? <laughs> what did you just <laughs> say? No, Scrooge McDuck uh, in 1960, uh, in a comic, attempted to start a seaweed farm in the Sargasso Sea. Uh, 
Oh. Harvesting the sargassum, I, I suppose. Or smoking it. But it is also, weirdly, the birthplace of eels. For a long, long time, nobody knew where eels came from. And in, in the early 19th century, they found that the southern Sargasso Sea is the spawning ground for both European and American eels. And they both migrate. The Europeans travel about 5,000 kilometres and the Americans ones travel about 2,000 kilometres to get to their respective land masses. Wait, 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 wait. Eels aren't like just local to your local river or whatever? Oh, no, 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 no. No, very mysterious real it was very unclear how they reproduced for a very long time for real <laughs> yeah this yeah. is real so they migrate all the way from the sargasso sea the sargasso sea yeah. so they're sargassum they're all sargassons all eels or at least the american and european are sargassons oh. that's interesting from the point of view of today i read an article about they actually tracked electronically tracked an eel back to the sargasso sea oh, oh really there you go proof positive that i know what i'm talking that's about that's fascinating that is a good fact and quite quite often it's it's one of those things almost like salmon as well. They'll come back to the same river that their parents used to go in. How do they do that? Maps. Yeah, they've all got little tiny... Uh, GPS. Little mobile phones under their fin. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious. Do good facts that are told in the verdict count towards your overall grade? No. Good. Okay, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> Continued sabotage, sir. <laughs> will not go unresponded to. <laughs> All right, I've got one word for you. Donuts. <laughs> Donuts. Admiral Donuts. He was, the, as you said, he was the Fuhrer. It's, he was the Fuhrer, yeah, for like a couple of days. <laughs> yes. So I didn't know anything about Carl Donuts, so I, I did a little, a little research on him. Do you want to hear some Donuts facts? I do. Lay the Donuts on me. <laughs> okay, so Grand Admiral, erstwhile leader of Germany for just a few days after Hitler's death. Uh, he had an IQ of 138, uh, which was the third highest amongst the Nazi leaders. Did they used to compare? <laughs> over dinner. <laughs> That's not a very good benchmark, is it? <laughs> is it not? What's a good IQ then? Well, 140 is considered genius. Oh, well, he's not far off it. All right. 138. Yeah, if, there, if then there were only two people in Germany with a higher IQ than that, then no wonder they lost. Uh, he was Nazi party member number... 12. <laughs> Incorrect. 9,664,999. He was, yeah, he was very late, wasn't he? Because he wasn't, he basically wasn't a Nazi. Jumping on the bandwagon, really, at that point, aren't you? Well, it's not. It's not so much jumping on the bandwagon, it's basically to get a job, you had to have membership. Well, speaking of someone who is not a Nazi, <laughs> I'd just like to emphasise, uh, I think it's not surprising that high up Nazis didn't have high IQs, because there'd have to be something wrong with you to be a Nazi. Don't be a Nazi. <laughs> <laughs> Protest too much. <laughs> Okay, so Donuts, uh, anti-Semitic. Uh, he said in 1944, I would rather eat dirt than see my grandchildren grow up in the filthy, poisonous atmosphere of Jewry. So not a subtle anti-Semite at all, uh, very much out and proud. Well, you say that, but during his trial at the Nuremberg Trials, he backpedalled slightly, <laughs> <laughs> saying he knew nothing about the extermination of Jews and that nobody among his men thought about violence against Jews. He also said, I never had any idea of the goings-on as far 
far as Jews were concerned. Hitler said each man should take care of his business, and mine was U-boats and the Navy. So, yeah, that, however, proved untrue <laughs> when, during his trial, it was found that he had attended the Posen Conference in 1943, where Himmler described the mass murder of Jews, thereby making everyone there complicit in the crime. Oh, my lord. Yeah. He was found not guilty of committing crimes against humanity, but was found guilty on two other charges, crimes against the peace and war crimes. Specifically, he was guilty for permitting slave labour in German shipyards and allowing his sailors to kill unarmed captives. For that, he was sentenced to 10 years in prison, during which time he remained entirely unrepentant. After prison, he retired. He went to a small village in Hamburg. And wrote a book and became a multimillionaire. He did. He wrote two books, in fact. He wrote a couple of memoirs. In the first one, he gave his opinion that the Nazi regime was a product of its time, said that he was not a politician and therefore not morally responsible for the regime's crimes. Although being the leader of the country, even if for a few days, does kind of make him a politician. <laughs> he wasn't kicking up a fuss about it, was he? Let's be yeah. He remained an anti-Semite, though. He blamed the Jews for his incarceration. He said that if he had been, if it had been down to the Americans and not the Jews, he would definitely have been released a free man. He lived until 1980, uh, when on Christmas Eve, at the age of 89, he died of a heart attack after a prolonged illness. His funeral was conducted without military honours, in which the servicemen who attended were not allowed to wear military uniforms. Wow. And that was the end of Donuts. Well, he was a complex figure, wasn't he, really? I mean, he did hush up the uh, Athenia affair, but he also did initially insist that the, the U-boats were sent out to find survivors. So, yes, mm. war makes complex people more complex. <laughs> don't know where I'm going with that. <laughs> Can I talk about U-boats for a second? You can talk yeah. about U-boats. So the first German submarines built in 1914, called Unterseeboot. What could that possibly translate yeah. as? <laughs> <laughs> Undersea boat. Yeah, the U-boat for short. They were 214 feet long. They carried 35 men. They had 12 torpedoes and they could travel underwater for just two hours at a time. Wow. Which doesn't sound like very much, but I guess this is 1914, right? Uh, did they use electricity, electric batteries? So that's why. Ah, uh, yeah. Because you had, they had, even then they had to be quiet, especially when the British invented Asdick, a typical British name for a, a product, Asdick. What, what's Asdick? Is that like radar or something? So it's, it's radar with sound as opposed to radar with uh, radio waves. So what I have in my mind then, Ryan, from your description is this two-hour electric submarine. It's mm -hmm. tr tr travels along for two hours and it reaches the surface and then everyone has to hop on pedal bikes and pedal furiously as the dynamos on the bike charge up the submarine again and yeah. then go for another two hours. That's how it <laughs> works in my well, head. Well, no, they could switch on the diesel engines which would, uh, which would recharge the batteries come on not Pete. sustainable though is it <laughs> it's better than the solar panels <laughs> Uh, in the period between the two world wars, Germany was not allowed to build any submarines as per the Treaty of Versailles. But they got round this. Do you know how, any idea how? They just they did just it anyway. They made them anyway. Yeah, but do you know how? Underwater? No, they, they established a dummy company in Holland called NV Ingenieurskantur Verschepsbau, which made and sold submarines to other countries. Uh, they sold them to Turkey, to Spain, to Finland and to Russia. But at the same time, they were using it as an opportunity to sort of test and build prototype submarines. Ah. Which, when the Second World War came round, they just deployed as part of their Kriegsmarine, uh, you know, their navy, essentially. And yeah, that was what gave them the kickstart. Wow. Secret company.
talking of ending up in the drink, uh, Pete, I wanted to thank you for the grog that you brought. Oh, well, there's absolutely no problem at all. Oh, Mr. Dursley, I, on the subject of trying to counter Ryan's sabotage, did you receive your gift? Oh, yes. Yes, I did. I, I, I'm used to now receiving liquid emoluments <laughs> in the post. Um, however, of course, that does set a precedent. So the first time someone doesn't do it. Mm. Well, we've painted ourselves into a, an arms race of gift giving, haven't we? <laughs> <laughs> but how did you find the the, the pusses? Pusses. The pussy rum. Yeah. It was very nice. Well, this is a Navy rum. So I, I t- we talked a little bit about rum in general being a drink that was uh, given to British sailors and the Black Tot Day when it was ended uh, in 1970, I think it was. But uh, do you know what makes a Navy rum a Navy rum? So you get rum, obviously, mm-hmm. but sometimes pusses being an example see, describes uh, the itself proof as a Navy of it, rum. The strength of it. Exactly. So it's not, I, I couldn't find whether there was a really, really official version of this because it's got bundled up in so much rum based marketing that the truth is a little bit foggy. But uh, it seems to be that um, when they were carrying rum on board in the days of gunpowder and ships having gunpowder on deck as well as barrels of rum, mm. they wanted the rum to be sufficiently potent and sufficiently distilled that it was flammable so that if you had a rum spillage and that spillage went on your gunpowder, no problem, it will still fire because the rum is over 45, I think, roughly percent proof to, or percent alcohol rather, to, um, to mean it wouldn't matter. So if you drink a load of beer in your gunpowder, your guns are useless, but mm. if you drop your rum on it and it's navy rum because it has to be past this threshold no problem you can fire your cannons yeah just keep your rum and your gunpowder separate on different parts of the ship yeah i think it's hard when there's cannibals flying through your ship at the at uh, any given time so i think there are risks to it Talking of having a nice drink, though, you, you obviously we heard from Margaret about the crow's nest in Canada, and I thought I'd have a look to see whether or not there were any navy clubs that we could join here in the UK, <laughs> and specifically what the oldest one was uh, and how long they've been going for. So a, a document was found in 1847 which revealed that a naval club had been founded in 1674. Wow. Yeah, uh, during the reign of Charles II, uh, but because no other evidence exists of that club, it's kind of discounted okay, as being so the oldest. It's just a document. Unless we find some evidence later that shows that, yeah, there was another club and that it happened. It's kind of been ignored. Uh, but So, in fact, the oldest naval club is now considered to be the Royal Navy Club in London. It's a members-only club for officers uh, qualified for sea command in the Royal Navy, uh, those serving or retired. Oh, so we could all be members then? Yeah, it's unlikely we're going to become members, unfortunately, based <laughs> on that. I'm not sure I want to do 10 years in the Royal Navy just to <laughs> join a club. <laughs> um, yeah, and it traces the origins of two separate clubs. One was formed in 1765 and the other one was joined in 1785 and then those two joined together in 1889. The first club, called the Navy Society, started in 1765. The first entry in the committee minutes book reads, At a meeting at Captain Keith's on Monday the 4th of February 1765, it was resolved by the undermentioned gentlemen to set foot on a society of their brother officers at the St. Albans Tavern on this day seven night. Right, so the eight captains present are listed as Captains George Tonyan, Sir John Strachan John Carter Allen Basil Keith Michael Clements John Literal Richard Onslow and Hyde Parker Jr. Right? Some of those were made up I'm yeah. certain <laughs> yeah. John Literal in particular <laughs> 
These eight captains are now recognised as the founders of the club, and 4th of February is celebrated as their Founders Day. At their next meeting, a further 15 captains signed up, and more and more captains signed and joined the club, including, in 1784, one Captain H. Nelson. Ah, Any Horatio. Idea? Horatio, indeed, yeah. Uh, Nelson was also a member of the second club, though, the Navy Club, which was established in 1785, so a member of both. That club, which only allowed 150 members and was criticised by its members for its long membership waiting list and high dinner prices, <laughs> uh, <laughs> eventually decided that it was in everybody's best interest if the, those two clubs joined. Uh, so in 1888, that's what happened, and it became the Royal Navy Club, and it's still going strong today, with members including, no less than, the King of England himself, King Charles III. Did he pop down often for a swift bevy? I, 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 they wouldn't tell me. I would not want to join a club that would have me as a member, as Groucho Mark famously said. I'm glad you said that because I thought I heard that before. <laughs> And so, Peter, we have come to the end of the line. It's time to step into the dock and prepare to face the people's judge. Judge Dursley, are you ready to give your verdict? Yes, I am. Then please will the defendant rise. Your Honour, as usual, may we start proceedings by first asking for your verdict on factual content. Packed with facts, it was. Shut up, you. (laughs) It was packed with facts. Yes. Damn it! Most of which were correct. Damn it! Ah. Apart from a few that were thrown in today without justification. Exactly. I agree, Your Honour. Or clarification. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would say it's probably an E grade then. I mean, if I had to offer one. I don't think you have to, though, do you? I think we should let the judge do his business. Nobody ever gets an E grade. Yeah, except last week when I did. So, there's that. (laughs) Well. Okay, so... You deserved it. I (laughs) did. Okay, so, Your Honour, may we have your grade for factual content? Okay, I will give... A B minus. A B minus. Fucking start. Dang it. That's pretty good. Okay, uh, Your Honour, then I'll ask for your verdict on entertainment value. How entertained were you? I mean, I seem to remember you saying you knew all of this, so probably not very entertained. I remember you saying how hilarious you enjoyed the found the sketches. Well, um, it's, it's interesting you say that. Um, I thought one of the songs was awful. Mm, I agree. He's never a fan of the song. But one of the jokes was very funny. That was probably mine, though, I reckon. <laughs> it was it was the poop deck joke. Yeah, that was mine. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's Ryan's level, but it's, uh, it was in my episode, so I, I guess it all counts. Well, yes, it's in your episode. So, every, every so thanks, Ryan. So we're sort of in the balance on that one. Okay, well then, can I have your uh, your grade for entertainment value? Okay, for entertainment value, C plus. C plus. It's going down. I think you should have written better jokes, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and then finally, Your Honour, may I ask for your verdict on Dursley Factor? Well, it was a big area to cover, literally and figuratively. Um, we didn't get much red in it, though. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> Quiet, you. There was plenty of red. There was a red link in every segment. Well, there's just they're sort of just getting the word red in and making a facile little joquette about it. Yeah. 
true. <laughs> Talking about being red. So, Your Honour, may I have the verdict then for Dursley Factor? So, for the Factor, I will give it a C. Solid C, because it's the Atlantic Sea. Been a bit robbed there. It's not the Atlantic Sea. <laughs> Could be an Atlantic A. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, there we go. Those are the grades that lead us towards the final verdict. So, Peter, before the judge passes his verdict, you have an opportunity here to enter a plea. Uh, if you choose to do so, please make that plea now. Well, it's not so much a plea as a statement that I think, in a way, the verdict on this episode is really a verdict on the men and women who served and fought and, in some cases, even died to preserve our freedoms. Some of them travelling the icy waves of the Atlantic so that you and I could have the comfortable lives we have today. So in this verdict, isn't it really a verdict on them? That was shameful. (laughs) (laughs) A little part of me inside has died. A little part of you is like, why didn't I think of that? (laughs) Well, now now you've put it like that. (laughs) Your Honour, the defendant stands before you. Have you reached a verdict? Uh, Yes, I believe the defendant has caused me to reconsider my original verdict. (laughs) In which case, I would ask most respectfully then for your ruling. I think taking all things into account and the rather nice rum that I received, I shall give Peter A minus. Yes! We are sailing. Shut up! We are. <laughs> Did that after the verdict came in? <laughs> are we going to take any points off for him singing there, Your Honour? No, we're not. Damn it! Right, well, there you go. That is the show for this week. If you'd like to get in touch about any of the things we've talked about on the show or just to say hello, you can reach out to us on social media through our website at hhepodcast.com or by email at peteandryan at hhepodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you and you never know, you might end up featured on a future show. And one way to definitely feature on a future episode is to rate and review the show on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Your recommendation can really go towards bringing the show to new listeners. If you are on the social media, the TikToks, Instagrams, Facebooks or Twitter, you can find us at HHE Podcast. So subscribe to those and you'll get an alert every time we post a one minute animated HHE bite. And we're going to be back again soon with our next episode, episode 61, The Boogeyman in United Arab Emirates between 1750 and 1850. Ah! Spooky. (laughs) (laughs) But in the meantime, a huge thank you to the judge himself. Thank you, Paul. My pleasure. (laughs) And that's it. I guess all that's left to say is you've been listening to... So, yeah, one thing is you put that bloody We Are Sailing song in, which is, I believe the current phrase is earworm, which, which I have been <laughs> s- singing to myself for the last few days. It's really quite annoying. <laughs> Sorry about that. Audio terrorism. I thought it was going to, I for sure thought it was going to be the What Should We Do With A Drunken Sailor one that would get in everybody's ears. Because it just gets repeated again and again and again. It does, no, doesn't it? We Are Sailing is the one that definitely stuck with me for a yeah, past I, week I as well. Yeah, I the same problem, I must admit. Yeah.
<laughs> <laughs> He's been on the run. I'm going to cut him off in a minute.